in the 1700s, Wales was blessed with a spiritual awakening known as the Welsh Methodist Revival. And a key figure used mightily of God in the various periods of religious awakening in that century in Wales was Daniel Rowland. Through the preaching ministry of Daniel Rowland, the small village chapel in Langatho, from which Rowland preached, became famous throughout Wales as a center of the Calvinist Calvinistic Methodist movement. Langatho experienced several waves of revival in those days. One such spiritual awakening included such intense rejoicing that the dancing and jumping for joy that accompanied it earned the Welsh Methodists the nickname Jumpers. Such was the spiritual fervency of those days that thousands would travel great distances each Lord's Day to the rural village of Langatho to hear Roland preach. In fact, George Whitfield reported that at one open-air communion service in Roland's remote parish, he believed that he saw perhaps 10,000 from different parts. Meanwhile, the church in England responded to the religious fervency by attempting to suppress the Calvinistic Methodism and actually moved to eject Roland from the parish church in 1763, to which the people responded by erecting a new church in which Roland could then preach. Well, a little over a century later, a small Welsh boy moved from the cosmopolitan English-speaking town of Cardiff into the heart of southwest Wales to that same small Welsh-speaking village of Langitho. Later he would write of this move, I, will rem- I well remember about a year after we moved to Langitho, as I was playing with a number of children outside the school that I begged them not to speak English to me anymore, speak Welsh to me. I'm a Welshman now. That small Welsh boy, born in the last year of the 19th century, would grow to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, preachers in the 20th century. He would come to be known all over the Christian world as simply the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. However, what the child Lloyd-Jones would experience during his almost 10 years in Langatho was not the spiritual fervency of a century earlier, to say the least. In fact, regarding his experience within the church there, Lloyd-Jones would later write, Our minister was a moral, legalistic man, an old schoolmaster. I do not remember that he ever preached the gospel, and none of us had any idea of the gospel. He, along with the head deacon John Rollins, looked upon themselves as scholars. Although there was a statue of Daniel Rowland in the village, his influence had long since disappeared from the place, and Ichabod had been written across everything. While large congregations still met to worship on Sundays, morning and evening, it was the strong sense of tradition which accounted for it. Langatho had lost the fire, and the strong and the rejoicing of the Methodist revival to the same extent as the Westminster Abbey had lost the life and vitality of the early church. The glory had departed from Israel. 
Though Wales in those early days of Lloyd-Jones' life was not left completely without the winds of revival, such blessing would not penetrate the cold, dead religiosity of Langetho. Referring to the minister and and the head deacon, Lloyd-Jones comments, neither had any sympathy for the revival of 1904 and 05, and both of them were not only opposed to any spiritual stress or emphasis, but were equally, equally opposed to every popular innovation. Those who came home for their holidays from Glamorganshire, who spoke of their having been saved, were actually regarded as hotheads and madmen from the South. Elsewhere, Lord Jones wrote, Now I am old enough to remember the revival in Wales in 1904 and 05, and I remember hearing people say of somebody else, He has had the revival. What did they mean by that? Well, they were referring to an experience. The man had been a Christian. He had been a church member. And so far in the revival, he had remained untouched and unaffected. No longer he has had the revival. In revival, you see something happens. It is a phenomenon. The Spirit comes, falls upon people and upon congregations. They are transformed, and it is obvious to them and to the other people, so that others can say about a man, he has had the revival. How do people know that? Well, the man has given evidence of it. And the evidence, of course, can be strange and wonderful. I believe this stark contrast that Lloyd-Jones observed starting very early in his childhood and continuing throughout his days between those set ablaze by the blessed outpouring of the Holy Spirit and those on the opposite extreme played a key role in shaping Lloyd-Jones' hunger for revival, a hunger that was ever with the fiery preacher. Lloyd-Jones became convinced that what the church was in desperate need of above all else was to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, clothed with power from on high, set ablaze for Christ. It is not enough even to be orthodox, he would say. You must, of course, be orthodox, otherwise you have not got a message. People are not going to listen to our speculation. They can speculate themselves. People want a word of authority. This has always been so through the ages, and we have seen how people recognize this authority. We need authority, and we need authentication. It is not enough merely that we state these things and demonstrate them and put them logically. All that is essential, but it is not enough. Is it not clear that we are living in an age when we need some special authentication? In other words... We need revival. And this awareness of the church's greatest need shaped Lloyd-Jones' ministry philosophy. I spend half my time, says the doctor, telling Christians to study doctrine, and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. Well, in 1914, at the age of 15, due to financial hardships, the family had to leave Wales and move to London. This allowed Martin to attend grammar school, in which he excelled, and even to enter medical school, into which he was accepted at the ripe old age of 16. And Martin was indeed destined for London, it would seem, for at the height of Lloyd-Jones' preaching ministry, he would, of course, occupy one of the biggest platforms in Britain, London's Westminster Chapel. 
And yet Lloyd-Jones was not seminary trained, for he did not intend to enter into the ministry. Rather, Lloyd-Jones pursued a medical degree and became a doctor. In fact, he became a well-respected and sought-after doctor, doctor with a successful practice in London and a lucrative future ahead of him in medicine. And yet, when the doctor did answer the Lord's call into the ministry, he would trade it all for a pulpit in a poor area of Wales. Here is a quote a quote from C. Griffith Jones, writing actually for a, a secular paper, the News Chronicle. Seven years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, MD, MRCP, was on the threshold of a brilliantly promising career in Harley Street, but he renounced it to labor in one of the most difficult fields of forward movement evangelism in Wales. The Sandfields district of Ab Aberavon is, the, is a dead end. Even when the sun shines, sandy wastes and dreary crowded houses convey a sense of desolation, almost of hopelessness. What could a man denied work, disillusioned by social callousness, do here but live for a day, deteriorate, drift, and die? Sounds like a nice place. And into this desperate little world came the young physician minister preaching living the gospel of old new hope. He shocked the locality out of its despair. This world had failed them, but there was another world. Men listened amazed. Here was one who practiced the gospel that he preached with such tremendous conviction. He had given up a great career, fame, money, leisure, to live and to work among the poor and the hopeless. Christianity was not a mere fable any longer but a living, modern fact in the little church filled. And it filled, and it filled. The Holy Spirit blessed Lloyd-Jones' ministry in that little dead end of, Ab of Aberavon, and the church grew. Even through the Spirit's melting of some of the hardest of hearts in the community, his taming of some of the most wayward of drunkards and sinners. In Aberavon, the doctor labored in the ordinary, everyday work of the ministry, and the Lord graciously revived his church. The doctor labored hard in the ordinary, and the Holy Spirit granted them, graciously granted them, a taste of the special. There are not only the great experiences, writes Lloyd-Jones, but also the ordinary, everyday experiences. The church is not meant always to be in a state of revival, but is also to do ordinary, everyday work. However, some remember this fact so well that they forget that the church is meant to have special occasions, that is, occasions of revival. In the late 1930s, late 1930s, as the Lord made it clear to Lloyd-Jones that his time in Aberavon was coming to a close, Campbell Morgan invited Lloyd-Jones to come and share the pulpit at Westminster Chapel uh, to share it with him for six months. And this temporary arrangement appealed to Lloyd-Jones. Though before the six months was up, Lloyd-Jones would accept a full-time call to the associate pastor at Westminster. This from Ian Murray on the transition from Wales to London. 
from the little church in Aberavon to, uh, to Westminster. Certainly the Lloyd-Joneses, after their experiences at Aberavon, felt that there was little sense of unity in Westminster Chapel and little close spiritual fellowship among the people. Too much attention was given to organizations at the expense of spiritual life, the most striking omission of all from the weekly activities of the church being a prayer meeting. Those who only knew Dr. Lloyd-Jones at Westminster in later years could scarcely imagine him as a chairman at a display of the gymnastic classes. But with such things, he was to be occasionally involved in his first year at Westminster. Branches of the Girl Covenanters and the Boys' Brigade, also to be found at the chapel, looked to him for aid, assuming that he, as everyone else, regarded their existence as vital. Lloyd-Jones, however, did not regard their existence as vital. With the start of the war, and particularly with the German bombing raids on London, there was a necessary pause to all such extracurricular activities and clubs at Westminster. And with Campbell Morgan's retirement in 1943, Lloyd-Jones stepped into the pastorate. And with Lloyd-Jones at the helm and the close of the war, there did not return back to the church all these extracurriculars and clubs. Even the church choir would disappear permanently under Lloyd-Jones's leadership, as the doctor's focus would be on such meetings as the fellowship and discussion, which met once a week and was actually quite similar to our theology corner and the new format for our Friday night Bible study. Such weekly meetings as these, along with those dedicated to prayer, were the essentials in the life of the church in the mind of the doctor. And the type of church growth that Lloyd-Jones sought after was to be realized through just such meetings. I am one of those, he says, who still believe that the key to the present situation is the individual local church. It is possible for a revival, if we are waiting and praying for it, to start at any moment. Before we think about planning and organizing in order to reach the outsider, let us concentrate upon our own churches. Are our own churches alive? Are our own people real Christians? Are they such that in their contacts with others they are likely to win them for Christ and to awaken in their hearts a desire for spiritual things? That would be my own word to you today. That instead of spreading outward, we should concentrate inward and deepen and deepen and deepen our own spiritual life until men here and there get to the place where God can use them as leaders of the great awakening which will spread through the churches, churches and through the land. Prayer and fasting, waiting on the Lord, deepening our own walk with the Lord, and the spiritual life of your church. This is the counsel of Lloyd-Jones to the church. In other words, get ready for revival. Get yourself ready for God to move and to act. Get your church ready for a great, great awakening. This is the call of the doctor to those in his day and to every church, every church member in our own day as well. Thirty years after the doctor's arrival at Westminster, his time there came to a close. In 1968, after a successful surgery rid him of colon cancer, Martin Lloyd-Jones retired from the prestigious pulpit. 
though he would continue to preach and give lectures up until 1980. And until his death in 1981, the doctor labored editing his sermons, preparing them for publication, and would publish many such volumes during those years, and I would commend any of them to you all. Days before his death, the doctor, unable to speak, wrote a note to his family, Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. At another point, he pointed to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. When asked if that was his experience now, the dying Lloyd-Jones nodded his head with great vigor. And on February 28, 1981, Dr. Jo- Lloyd-Jones fell asleep this side of the Jordan one last time to awake in the glory. However, the impact of this fellow sinner saved by grace the impact that he would have for the kingdom of God was only beginning. As Lloyd-Jones' children and grandchildren have continued the work of editing his sermons and publishing them in book format and as well organizing the MLJ Trust, and I would point you to, to, to the treasure trove of audio sermons given by Dr. Lloyd-Jones that have been made available through that trust online at ML, MLJ trust.org Now what I would like to do with the rest of this message is to simply share with you some of the ways in which the Lord has used the writings the writings and the recordings of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in my personal walk in ministry and while these are admittedly personal in nature they are as well I believe at the very heart of Lloyd-Jones's legacy at least that portion of his legacy that pertains most pointedly to the conference we are kicking off this evening in which our focus will be the doctrine of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit in the life of the church if I were to sum up in a single sentence the benefit I received from Lloyd-Jones, I would simply say this. I find Lloyd-Jones's hunger for revival and for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be gloriously contagious. Lloyd-Jones recognized two great errors threatening the church in his day. Liberalism on the one side and dead orthodoxy on the other. And this, again, is why he continually found himself spending half of his time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half warning them that doctrine is not enough. Lloyd-Jones has helped to inform and shape my understanding of the Christian religion, the Christian walk, as one of the word and the spirit, doctrine and fire. Again, as as he warned, orthodoxy is not enough. We must be orthodoxy or we are worse than the demons. Doctrine and correct doctrine and deep doctrine is absolutely essential. Do not misunderstand me. But Lloyd-Jones reminds us as well that there is such a thing as dead orthodoxy. Lloyd-Jones was troubled with what he referred to as the extraordinary position where the Church of Jesus Christ had very little to no interest in revival. 
and not only a lack of interest in revival, but even an antagonism to the idea. Lloyd-Jones asserted that before about 1860, it was instinctive for people to think in terms of revival. Instinctive. If there had been a period of spiritual drought, if things were not going well in the church, the first thing they thought of was this. Should not we have a time of confession and humiliation and prayer for God to visit us again? However, by his day, Lloyd-Jones lamented that most church members did not think at all of revival. And what was the cause of this? Well, Lloyd-Jones would point to a few things. First, to the decline in Calvinistic theology and the rise of modern-day Arminianism. For again, right doctrine is essential. Second, Lloyd-Jones pointed to the rise of Charles Finney and the wholesale acceptance of his view of revival as simply an evangelistic campaign, something that can be planned and scheduled. And thirdly, with a bit less certainty, Lloyd-Jones pointed to the rise of the seminary. I cannot but feel, he says, that theological seminaries have been an important factor in the change. Up until, say, the 1830s, he says, the position was something like this. At first, the, preacher was done, the preaching was done by clergy and ministers who had themselves been revived. Numbers of men who had been converted then began to feel a call to preach, or it was suggested to them by some of these leaders that they had, been, that they had a preaching gift. They had manifested it in prayer or in taking part in a class meeting or in a discussion. And now they were encouraged to preach. These men were farmers, workers, manual workers, and so on. They had not been to a theological seminary. However, they were men who had a living experience of God in their hearts, who read and studied their Bibles and books about the Bible. They were men of strong natural talents and, very, and were very largely self-taught. This was the class of men who largely became the preachers after the death of the first great leaders. But then the idea, idea came in that as education had spread among the masses and the congregations were now more sophisticated and more learned, the ministry of these simple, ordinary men was no longer adequate. I'm not criticizing the attitude, says Lloyd-Jones. I'm just trying to put the actual facts before you. It was felt that there was a need for training and that you must have learned men in the ministry. This started with an un undoubtedly good and right motive. And as well, there is no reason why spirituality and learning should be incompatible, but nevertheless, it does seem to be the case in practice that as men become more and more learned, they tend to pay less and less attention to the spiritual side of things. Now, this is almost inevitable, of course, for we are yet in the flesh and are still imperfect. Whether a man wants to or not, he gradually finds himself becoming more and more interested in things in a purely intellectual manner. I have known this very thing in my own life, he says. Unconsciously, one can become so interested in the purely intellectual aspect of Christianity and in learning and understanding and knowledge as to forget the spirit. I am therefore putting it simply as a possibility for consideration that perhaps the increase in theological seminaries may have been a factor in discouraging people from thinking about revival. The more learned we became, the more respectable we tend to become. 
as we become men of weight and important, we feel that we have to be careful as to what we do or allow to happen to us. It is extremely difficult for such men to maintain that simplicity which is in Christ Jesus, certainly more difficult than for the other type of man whom I have just been describing. And Lloyd-Jones is perhaps most troubled by the loss in revival, loss of interest in revival among those of the Reformed tradition. For example, Lloyd-Jones, in turning to Charles Hodge while preparing to speak on revival, lamented, Charles Hodge does not seem to have been interested in revival. Why not? I would say it is for the reasons I have already been giving. A man man like Charles Hodge becomes a theologian, and he tends, therefore, not to think as he should in terms of the church in its local concrete situation. The church in its local concrete situation. But in terms of great abstract systems of truth, he lives in the realm of comparisons and arguments and contrasts of systems and especially a philosophy, and almost inevitably he ceases to think as he should about revival and the immediate operations of the Holy Spirit. And what then are those things specific to to us Reformed thinkers that the doctor would indicate as potential reasons for our loss of interest in the immediate operations of the Holy Spirit? Our loss in interest in the experiential? Well, one factor he pointed to is an overemphasis on apologetics, where all the energy of the Orthodox is focused on defeating wrong thinking. Do not understand me, he said. I am not arguing against the value of apologetics altogether, but I am saying this, that a church which becomes governed by the apologetic interest is a church that is ceasing to function positively. The devil has got her. And she tends to be negative only and to fail to recognize the positive activity of the Holy Spirit. As well, the doctor would point to a natural dislike of too much emotion, a tendency to be distrustful of emotion. And this distrust is, of course, only aggravated by the presence of excesses and abuses, which so often leads to an overreaction and overcorrecting the proverbial pendulum swing. This the doctor recognized even in the Puritans, the majority of which spoke little to nothing of revival, an unfortunate trend which would prove to be a great difficulty to many who followed after them. Try to discover, says Lloyd-Jones, what John Owen has to say on John 7, verses 37 through 39. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Or what he has to tell us on Peter's sermon in Acts 2. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Or on Acts 3.19, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The Puritans, too, you see, were dealing with Enthusiasts such as the Quakers who went so far as to say that because of the so-called inner light and the direct dealings of the Holy Spirit that they did not need the word at all. However, Lloyd-Jones suggests that the Puritans went too far in the other direction in their response. Now the main Puritans, he says, in their desire to control that excess which they could see was going to do harm to the truth over against the formalists, went so far as to say that you must never, never trust anything unless it comes directly, directly with the word. 
but clearly that that view goes beyond scripture as our studies through the book of Acts I think have borne witness and in, in addition to that excessive reaction the doctor would add the excessive reaction against Pentecostalism in his day here the doctor minces no words many are so afraid of Pentecostalism and it, in its, its excesses and aberrations that they are quenching the Holy Spirit Ever is there a danger, he says, of overreacting against something as so, lose, as, as so to lose the balance of Scripture. The balance of Scripture. And this brings out something that I so appreciate about Lloyd-Jones, and that is his unwavering commitment to Scripture, to the text. Lloyd-Jones refused to be beholden in any way to systems. Though he was a student of theology and of church history, the doctor was first and foremost textual, scriptural. And as a student of theology, the doctor was necessarily a student of the Bible. And this revealed itself, I think, in the fact that Lloyd-Jones was a bit eclectic in his theology. And not for the sake of being different, but because he labored to be true to the text of Scripture. And he refused to let any system get in the way of the text of Scripture. For example, Lloyd-Jones, though he did not see it as an issue to separate over, remained unconvinced by the Pado-Baptist position. And so while Lloyd-Jones was Reformed or Calvinistic, he was at the same time Baptistic. And in the words of his grandson, Christopher Catherwood, if like Lloyd-Jones or MacArthur, or I would add Spurgeon, you take your guidance from Scripture alone rather than from man-made creedal constructions, however wonderful they may be, then this is not a problem. That is being Calvinistic and Baptistic. And Lloyd-Jones' unwavering commitment to the text led to his distrust of labels, a trait that many of us would share. In the words of Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, speaking of her husband at the time as, her, as his widow, why do people use these names? Why can't they just say he was biblical? And so it was that her husband, above all else, was biblical, textual. Lloyd-Jones was not beholden to the camp. He was not controlled by the groupthink mentality. And this is revealed in his willingness to break from the camp whenever scripture demanded it. And as well, his unwillingness to go along with the ecumenical movement that so many of his even close friends found so enticing. And I think his willingness to stand alone outside the camp when his interpretation of text of the text demanded it shines most brightly in his insistence upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a phenomenon that occurs apart from conversion, apart from regeneration, though he would say that it may occur at times very close to conversion. Lloyd-Jones separated from classic Reformed theology in that he saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate experience from conversion and regeneration and even the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the first of such occurrences. For Lloyd-Jones did allow for subsequent experiences, which he identified as those further or later fillings of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Scripture. 
Baptism of the Holy Spirit for Lloyd-Jones was separate from conversion and followed conversion. It was not merely regeneration or indwelling. And as well, he saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit as distinct from any subsequent fillings. And yet Lloyd-Jones was no Pentecostal. For he also affirmed that every Christian indeed receives the Holy Spirit at conversion. And as well that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not always accompanied by tongues, nor did it need to be. And yet Lloyd-Jones was not a cessationist. And if you read Lloyd-Jones, this becomes quite clear. And I quote, The scriptures never The scriptures never anywhere say that these things were only temporary. Never. Anyone who is prepared to say that all this ended with the apostolic age and that there has never been a miracle since the apostles is making a most daring statement. Not only is there nothing in in the scripture to say that all these miraculous gifts, gifts had to end with the apostolic age, the subsequent history of the church, it seems to me, gives the lie direct to this very contention. I say once more, therefore, that to hold such a view is simply to quench the Spirit. Those people, he says, those people who say that baptism with the Holy Spirit happens to everybody at regeneration seem to me, seem to me not only to be denying the New Testament, but to be definitely quenching the Spirit. In fact, Lloyd Jones pointed to the particular to the particular teaching of the cessationists that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is merely an objective, non-experiential reality as the greatest factor in the quenching of the Holy Spirit in his day. It is said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is non-experimental, that it happens to everyone at regeneration. So we say, oh, well, I I am already baptized with the Spirit. It happened when I was born again at my conversion. There is nothing more for me to seek. I've got it all. Got it all, he asks. Well, if you have got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? If you have got it all, why are you so unlike the apostles? Why are you so unlike New Testament Christians? I am convinced, he says, that there are large numbers of Christian people who are quenching the Spirit unconsciously by denying these possibilities in their very understanding of the doctrine of the Spirit. There is nothing, I am convinced, that so quenches the Spirit as the teaching which identifies the baptism of the Holy Ghost with regeneration. Now on that last point, Lloyd-Jones may be overstating things just a bit. For one may not share Lloyd-Jones's view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a purely subsequent experience to conversion and regeneration, and even the first of such experiences exclusively, and yet at the same time share in his view that there are subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit, and, the Christian, and that the Christian is ever to be seeking such filling, and that revival can be equated with these fillings of the Holy Spirit on a mass scale. Whatever particular label you want to put on it, is it not the case, brethren, that the Christian should be ever seeking more of the Holy Spirit? And the church is right to be praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for revival. 
And therefore, any view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as something that happens to us without our even being aware of it and without any variation of experience, any difference in feeling or subsequent feelings, basically, basically that the believer on day one has all that he is ever going to have of the Holy Spirit is a view that would indeed leave the Christian not seeking after more and thus be a view that effectively quenches the Holy Spirit. And yet this extreme cessationism is quite often the reaction to the chaos that is going on in the so-called charismatic movement as the pendulum swings once again too far to the right. But I would submit to you that the charismatic chaos is not going to be corrected with this sort of unbiblical hyper-cessationism. Rather, we should be speaking into the chaos with the Bible, reasoning from the text, calling for the biblical balance of Lloyd-Jones. For the biblical balance of Lloyd-Jones speaks to both extremes, to both ailments, to dead orthodoxy, of, to the dead orthodoxy of many intellectuals, and as well to the chaos of many of the charismatics. And we desperately need to be speaking to both extremes and as well particularly aware of our own bent. A minister of the gospel, he says, is a man who is always fighting on two fronts. He first of all has to urge the people to become interested in doctrine and theology. But we, he will not have been at that long before he will find that he has to open up a second front and to tell people that it is not enough to be interested only in doctrine and theology, that there is a danger of becoming a mere orthodox intellectualist and of growing negligent about your own spiritual life and the life of the church. This is the besetting danger of people who hold the reform position. They are the only people who are really interested in theology. And so the devil comes to them and drives them too far along the line of that interest and they tend to become pure theologians and interested in truth only intellectually. And yet again, Lloyd-Jones would recognize that it did not have to be that way. For Lloyd-Jones saw a difference between a man like Charles Hodge and a man like Jonathan Edwards. Though both men were theologians and both highly intellectual. Religion is something, he said to Edwards, that belongs essentially to the heart. It is essentially experimental, essentially practical. This is made clear in the famous account he gives of an experience he once had. Do not forget we are dealing with one of the greatest geniuses the world has ever known and the greatest American philosopher of all times. And this is what he tells us. Once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. 
which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. I have many times had a sense of the glory of the third person of the Trinity and his office as sanctifier in his holy operations, commuting divine, commuting, communicating divine light and life to the soul. God in the communications of his Holy Spirit has appeared as an infinite fountain of divine glory and sweetness being full and sufficient to fill and satisfy the soul pouring forth itself in secret communications like the sun in its glory sweetly and pleasantly diffusing light and life. And I have sometimes an affecting sense of the excellency of the word of God as a word of life as the light of life, a sweet, excellent, life-giving word accompanied with a thirsting after that word that it might dwell richly in my heart. Now that, comments Lloyd-Jones, that represents Edwards's essential view of religion. Oh, reading Lloyd-Jones, brethren, I can't help but gain a sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo, spiritually speaking. I gain a hunger for more of God, more of his spirit. I begin to seek after revival, personal revival, and revival of the church, revival that is the only hope for the church and for this lost world. Listen to this statement from the doctor as and see if it doesn't speak directly into the current state of things. We see the Christian church in a more or less perilous condition, ineffective in a world of sin and shame, a world which is increasingly manifesting in a horrifying manner godlessness and hatred and antagonism to God. There is only one hope for such a world, and that is a revived church. A revived church church. So the most urgent need of the hour is revival in the Christian church, and that means revival in the individual Christian. Lloyd-Jones has these times where he exclaims, that is it, <laughs> that is it. And it is most often when he has discovered in some old theologian, reformer or Puritan, such personal revival, such baptism of the Holy Spirit, whether they themselves would label it the same or not. But oh, how stirring such accounts are, how they should leave us longing for more of the gracious influence of God's Spirit, as they no doubt did for Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones quotes Spurgeon, who once preached, God has a way of speaking without the word and without the ministers to our hearts. His spirit can drop like the rain and distill like the dew as the small rain upon the tender herb. 
We know not how it is, but sometimes there is a deep, sweet calm. Our conscience says, I have been washed in the blood of Christ. And the Spirit of God saith, I, tis true. In such times we are so happy, so happy that we want to tell our joy. So blessed that if we could but borrow angels' wings and fly away, we would scarce know the change when we were passed through the pearly gates. For we have had heaven below and there has been little difference between that and heaven above. Oh, I wish that my whole congregation, without exception, consisted of men and women who had heard the Spirit say, I am thy salvation. What happy hymns. What happy prayers. You might go home to some poor single room. You might go to to a scantily furnished house and to a table that has barely bread upon it. But oh, happy man, happy man. Better would be your dinner of herbs than a stalled ox without confidence in Christ. Better your rich poverty than the poverty of the rich who have no faith in Jesus. Better all the all the griefs you have to endure when sanctified by assurance than all the joy the worldling has when unblessed by faith and unhallowed by the love of God. I can say now, grant me the visit, grant me the visits of thy face, and I desire no more. To which doctor, the doctor responds, that is it. That is it. The spirit, like the dew, dropping and falling. Elsewhere, the doctor preached, let me finally tell you again with re- what, what I regard as one of the most beautiful ways in which this matter has ever been put. It is by Thomas Goodwin, one of those great Puritans, again, of 300 years ago, and a brilliant scholar and preacher, This is the difference between what I call the customary assurance of a child of God and this extraordinary assurance. He describes a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road, and they are walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he is the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he is happy in that. There is no uncertainty about it. But suddenly the father, moved by some impulses, some impulse, takes hold of that child and picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then puts him back down again, and they go on walking. That is it. That is it. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child, but oh, this loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, this is the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. This is the outstanding characteristic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, Lloyd-Jones quotes Charles Simeon of Cambridge. Too many, alas, the sealing of the Spirit is mere foolishness. But those who account it as so speak evil of things that they do not understand. Let us seek to experience it ourselves instead of censuring those who do. God is willing to bestow this blessing on all who seek it. If we possess it not, we should inquire that inquire what there is in us which had occasioned God to withhold it from us. We should beg of God to take away from us the hardness of heart which incapacitates us for it. And we should live more on the promises that by by them it may be imparted to our own souls. That is it. 
That is it, responds Lloyd-Jones. I really have nothing to add to that. Think about it, Lloyd-Jones exhorts us, and work out your doctrine to account for something like this. This is again a Puritan, John Flavel, who was on a journey one day. Thus going on his way, his thoughts began to swell and rise higher and higher like the waters of Ezekiel's vision, till at last they became an overwhelming flood. Such was the intention of his mind, such the ravishing tastes of heavenly joys, and such the full assurance of his interest therein that he utterly lost all sight and sense of the world and all the concerns thereof, and for some hours he knew no more where he was than he had been in a deep sleep upon his bed. Arriving in great exhaustion at the certain spring, he sat down and washed, earnestly desiring that if it was God's pleasure that this might be his parting place from the world. Death had the most amiable face in his eyes that ever he beheld except the fact of Jesus Christ which made it so. And he does not remember though he believed himself dying that he ever thought of his dear wife and children or any other earthly concernment. On reaching his inn, the influence still continued, banishing sleep. Still the joy of the Lord overflowed him, and he seemed to be an inhabitant of the other world. He, many years after, called that day one of the days of heaven and professed that he understood more of the life of heaven by it than by all the books he ever read. Do you know anything about these things? asked Lloyd-Jones. Be careful in what you say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what is possible to a man here on earth. And again, this time in the words of Lloyd-Jones, a most ordinary man intellectually, the great evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody says, I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. Lloyd-Jones comments here how Moody had been a Christian, and not only a Christian, but a minister, and in charge of a mission for some time. He was getting conversions, but still he wanted more. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. But one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. It was so overwhelming, writes Lloyd-Jones, that he felt as if he was going to be physically crushed by the love of God. That is what is meant by the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. That is the baptism of the Spirit. That is what turned D.L. Moody from a good, regular, ordinary minister into the evangelist who was so singly used of God in this and in other countries. Lloyd-Jones has helped me to see the New Testament aright, to see New Testament Christianity aright, and to view our experience today in light of theirs, not theirs in light of ours. Lloyd-Jones has awakened in me a spiritual curiosity with regards to the shocking statements regarding the experiences of the New Testament Christians. 
like Paul's statement he just alluded to of the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. Now take that great term again, shed abroad, says Jones. Do not put your little limit to it and say, oh yes, I love God. Paul says that the love of God is shed abroad in great profusion, overwhelmingly in our hearts. Now that is what we should seek. We believe in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the doctrines of salvation. All right. But the question that confronts us at this particular point is not that of believing, but love. What is the first and chiefest commandment? Not that thou shalt believe in the Lord thy God, but that thou shalt love the Lord thy God and love him with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. Is this, is this true of us? There is nothing that will enable a man to do that but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can believe and in a sense have a measure of love, but the thing put before us is not just a measure of love. It is an abounding love. An abounding love. New Testament Christianity, says Lloyd-Jones, is not just a formal, polite, correct, and orthodox kind of faith and belief. No, what characterizes it What characterizes it is this element of love and passion, this pneumatic element, this life, this vigor, this abandon, this exuberance. And as I say, it has ever characterized the life of the church in all periods of revival and of of reawakening. This is what we must seek, not experiences, not power, not gifts. If he chooses to give them to us, thank God for them and exercise them to his glory. But the only safe way of receiving gifts is that you love him and that you know him. In other words, you put 1 Corinthians 13 in the center. Concentrate on love and then all these things will fall into their right respective position. I just love how Lloyd-Jones will not let me take such scriptures as Romans 5.5, nor 1 Peter 1.8. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Lloyd-Jones will not let me take a scripture like that and interpret that scripture through the lens of my own experience with some sort of experiential reductionism. The danger, he says, is that of reducing the New Testament terminology to the level of our own experiences. It is the danger of interpreting the New Testament teaching not in terms of the life of the early church, but the life of the church as it has become, unfortunately, during the centuries. To put it another way, it is the danger of interpreting New Testament teaching in terms of the life of the church when she is at her lowest instead of when she is at her highest in periods of revival and quickening and awakening and the manifestation of God's glorious power. Nothing to me, says Jones, is more serious than this. Oh, brethren, we too must be avoiding this reductionistic tendency and instead viewing ourselves in light of what the New Testament reveals about the New Testament church and be asking ourselves the question, are we like that? Are we like them? I am grateful that Lloyd-Jones will not let me be satisfied with the status quo, spiritually speaking. Just think, brethren, about the experiences of those first Christians that have been put before us to consider as we have been going through the book of Acts. 
Is it not the case that, that a major purpose for Luke's writing the book of Acts is to reveal the blessed results of the coming of the promised Holy Spirit? Well, says Lloyd-Jones, we look at the New Testament church. We see this amazing life that was in it, this power, this joy, this abandon, this thrill. And we ask ourselves, are we like that? We then read the history of the church and we see that it is not one of a dead level of life, nor of achievement, but a graph that goes up and down. We see that there have been periods in the church like this present era when the church has been weak and lethargic and ineffective. And then we read of those other periods, Reformation and Revival, when the church again seems to go back into acts and life and power come and people are transported, as it were, into another realm and are amazed at themselves and wonder whether they have ever been Christians at all until, at all until this happened to them. Now we examine ourselves in the light of all that. And if we feel that we know very little about it, well, then we start saying, I should not be like this. I must not remain like this. I see that there is other po- another possibility, and I want that. I want to be like that. I see the need of this, and I see the urgency of this need. Now that is obviously the first step, says Lord Jones. But there are many who do not take it, who speak actively against it. There are people today, I do not understand how they can possibly do so, but there are many people who are very satisfied with the present state of affairs. They seem to think that everything is going well in this country and in others. How anyone reading the New Testament and looking at the church as she is today can do that passes my comprehension. No, this is the first step. The realization of the need, of the possibility and the urgency of the need. Not so much in terms of ourselves as of the whole situation of the church in the world as she is at this present time. There is this paramount need of authority and power, of a holy boldness, of apostolic witness, if you will. It is the greatest need of all. And nothing can give us this but the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That has been the history of the church throughout the centuries. Well, let me close as Lloyd-Jones did in his sermon entitled The Sealing of the Spirit by letting Whitfield have the final word. This is an entry in his diary long after his conversion. He simply wrote, was filled with the Holy Ghost. Oh, that all who deny the promise of the Father might thus receive it themselves. Oh, that all were partakers of my joy. Oh, brethren, I for one want to know more of that joy. Amen. Well, exhorts the doctor, that is possible to you. Seek it. Seek it until you find it and have it. And are able to say, oh, that the whole world knew the joy that I now know. Oh, blessed Holy Spirit, break us, melt us, mold us, fill us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Amen.